So this morning we are continuing on with our series, Generation to Generation, talking about passing our faith on to our kids, Um, passing our faith on to our children. And by our children, we mean all of our children, the children of this church. We began, if you remember, with Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, about uh, the commission to the whole people of God, Moses speaking to the whole people. And we hear this first as parents. As parents, we have this responsibility, this role to encourage our kids in faith. But then we talked about it a few weeks ago that when Moses was speaking, he didn't say, okay, parents, time for your parent seminar and draw them aside and give these, these words. He was speaking to the whole people. And so I was thinking about that, reflecting on that this this call for us to sharpen our children or to impress our faith upon our kids is spoken to all of us, to the whole church. That, As we talked about that uh, two weeks ago, it takes a church to raise children in faith. And then we went on to Joshua uh, chapter 24, verses 14 to 15, talking about commitment and Joshua's example of commitment. That us, it requires a commitment on our part to disciple our children, the, disciple, the children of our church, but also a commitment on our part to be growing in faith. It doesn't, uh, kids can see through it pretty quickly if we aren't growing in faith to try and pass on what we don't have. So it's important for us not only to commit to helping our children grow in faith, but also for us to be growing in faith as well. Well, this Sunday is our last Sunday in this series. We're going to be talking some about content, about this gospel that we preach, excuse me, this gospel that we teach our kids. And some of you are already starting to pick up three C's, right? Commission, commitment, and content. So we can uh, hopefully remember it a bit better. But we're going to be talking some about the gospel that we teach our kids. And even maybe for some of us, the gospel that we believe ourselves. We have to give thought to what we teach our children. We have to be thoughtful about it. Because if we aren't teaching the gospel, they will infer a gospel. Let me say that again. If we aren't teaching the gospel, they will infer a gospel. And what I mean by that is they will infer a sub-gospel, some narrow vein of Christianity that is maybe, I mean, in itself true, but not the whole truth, not the whole gospel. Let me just give you a couple examples. One I've been thinking of is the Santa Claus gospel, as I call it. This is the idea that there is a God in heaven a deity in heaven who's just up there, who loves us and who just wants to do good things for us. And so whenever we have difficulty, uh, he's just there to help us through it. Kind of like God up in heaven for my sake. Now that's not necessarily untrue. There's truth in that. But if that's our only idea of God, that is horribly um, incomplete. I've uh, been reading this book as I talked about. It's called Generation, by, Generation to Generation by Wayne Rice. It's a workbook for parents on um, encouraging our kids in faith. And he has this quote from uh, a study that they did. This is actually a quote from a young woman. It said, listen, read this with me. It says, God is like someone who is always there for you. I don't know. It's like God is God. He's just somebody that will always help you go through whatever you're going through. When I became a Christian, I was just praying and it always made me feel better. Now, on the one hand, there's truth in that. But also, if that is this young girl's whole idea of God, she's missing so much. In that study, they called it therapeutic deism, which is a big word that basically, God who just makes my life better. God who's up there so when I'm in trouble, I can pray and he can bail me out. The Santa Claus gospel. 
Then there's also, too, the sin management gospel. That being a Christian is following Jesus, praying a prayer to follow him, and living the rest of your life with a bunch of stuff that you can't do. Sucking all the fun out of your life so that someday you can live forever. Sometimes kids, that's the gospel they infer. That's what they get. They think that Christianity is all about when their friends are out do, you know, partying and doing all this stuff in, in, uh, in secondary school or even college or university, that being a Christian just means there's a whole bunch of stuff you can't do. You live this boring life, but then eventually you get to live forever. The gospel of sin management. And there's also the fire insurance gospel, which is similar, but kind of the other side of the coin is that it doesn't matter what you do, God will forgive you if you just pray the prayer, if you just keep asking for forgiveness, then you get to go to heaven when you die. I don't know if you kind of caught both, both the sin management and the fire gospel. They're essentially about the person. I'm just doing this whole Christianity thing so I can live forever, so I can go to heaven when I die. Kids can infer these sort of gospels from us if we aren't teaching them the gospel. So the question is, what gospel do we need to teach our kids? What gospel should we be teaching our kids? Well, I've been thinking some about this great passage from Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. Now there's lots of places in Scripture where we could turn. There's a, there's a couple different ones I was thinking of, but I appreciate this particular passage. Um, this is called the Carmen Christi, or the Christ Hymn, in Philippians. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's talking with them about humility, about putting, actually saying, put others above yourself. Be humble like Christ. And then he speaks this Christ hymn, this Carmen Christi, to say, this is how Jesus, follow Jesus' example, this is how he put others above himself. But it's actually this elaborate theological statement about who Jesus is. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, or if you want to, it's in the bulletin as well. And read this with me. So this is in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, but this is a great compact version of the gospel. So listen to this. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these are just six verses. Just six verses, but has key elements of the gospel, of this Savior that we follow. Now, first let me say this. We, we need the whole Bible. We, for the whole gospel, we need all of Scripture. We need the whole thing, front to back, Genesis to Revelation. We need the Bible. Every word is inspired. Every word is important. It is irreducible. And so I want to say that up front, that we can't reduce. There's no simple version of the gospel. We need the whole thing. But we do need a portable version. We need a version that we can carry with us, that we can talk with others about. Because if someone says, you know, why do you follow Jesus? 
and we get out our Bible and we start reading at Genesis 1, like it could be a long time before we get to the point of why we follow Jesus. But it's all important. I mean, we need all of Scripture. We need the story of creation and the patriarchs, the people of Israel, the Psalms, the prophets, and how all of this works together and reveals who Jesus is. And we need to read the Gospels to understand who he is and why he's come. And then the letters to the churches as they try to understand who he is after his death and resurrection and revelation about him coming again. We need all of Scripture. The whole thing is necessary, but we also want a portable version for our kids. Nathan, how would it be if you had to memorize the whole thing, right? The whole Bible. (laughs) Unless you have already. No, not yet. Okay, still working on it. Okay. And so we need to get a portable version that our kids can carry with them. And, I mean, even for our sake, that we can carry with us. And some of you might be thinking, like, Jason, if you reduce it from the whole Bible, isn't this just another sub-gospel? Isn't this just another one of those things that we uh, talked about at the beginning, like the Santa Claus gospel? Well, I think it's different. Because I'm not trying to say that we simplify that we simplify the gospel down and the rest is just superfluous. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we get a portable gospel that we can carry with us that points to the whole gospel. A small, compact version that has all these signals that point to the whole Bible, point to the whole gospel, the whole good news, that God's kingdom has come, that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. Now, there's lots of places we can go. There's creeds, I mean, the Apostles' Creed, which we say uh, every uh, time we have communion together, along with the whole church. That creed has been around for thousands of years. Or there's also, too, like a denominational statements, you know, like our six covenant affirmations. We could use that for our kids. But today, we're going to stick with the Carmen Christi one because it's purely biblical. It comes out of Scripture. But also, too, because I love how comprehensive it is how theologically deep it is. So let me show you. Um, first of all, it's portable and it's memorable. It's memorizable. Anybody heard that word before? Did I just make that one? It's, you can memorize it. It's just six verses. And it's a passage that we can memorize and carry with us. Like I've mentioned a few weeks ago, I've been reading this book by Nick Ripkin, who is a uh, missionary to foreign parts of the world, especially where Christians are um, persecuted and put in prison or killed. And he talks to those people, he finds one of their most valuable things is memorizing scripture. And they found that even in places where, where persecution was really difficult, where it was, um, you know, one generation they were persecuted and the next it was eased up. He said within a generation, people stopped or the kids stopped memorizing scripture because they didn't need to anymore. They could just read a Bible openly. Whereas their parents or their grandparents, they memorized it because they knew at any night they could be arrested and thrown in prison and they would not have access to it. So they wanted to have it with them. But this small, these six verses from Philippians, we can memorize them. And we can hold them with us. And they become a framework. And they can open up like a tackle box. I've talked about this as a tackle box creed. Many of you guys, fishermen, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a fisher person, you know that like a tackle box is basically this box like this with a handle on it. Easy to carry. You can carry a bunch of other stuff in your other arm, and you can carry a tackle box nice and easy in your one hand. Okay? And then when you set it somewhere, you can open the latch and you can open up the lid. 
Well, it's not just one compartment, those cool ones. I mean, I've seen them too where they've got trays that open up and trays that open up. It expands to give you access to all the different lures, all the different things that you need. Well, this, I'm thinking of this, um, this passage from Philippians as a somewhat of a tackle box creed, a tackle box statement of faith that you can open up all these different verses. Each verse opens up into something more. Let me show you what I mean. So, this is our passage. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In this passage, I mean, just quickly, you can see that in being in very nature God, that Jesus wasn't somehow sub-God or a demigod. He is in very nature God. That Jesus is fully divine, fully God. We also get the sense of his pre-existence, that Jesus wasn't created when he became human or when he uh, was born of the Virgin Mary. That wasn't his first day, that he actually existed before that. Not only that, but we've been to get a sense, just a sense of the Trinitarian nature of God, that God, that Jesus existed with God the Father, that God wasn't God in heaven and then changed form to Jesus and then changed form to the Holy Spirit, that, um, that particular heresy. No, actually, Jesus existed at the same time as God the Father. So already we're getting theology out of this. So we carry this with us, that Jesus existed with God. <clears throat> but then he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. We also get this reality that Jesus is fully human, taking on the very nature, again, the word nature, the very nature of a servant. That Jesus was the highest of high. He was the Lord God, equal on par with God our Father, and then went clear to the bottom of humanity to slave. That Jesus is fully human. But also, too, he took on the very nature of a servant. A servant, we get a sense for his humility, for his love for us, the depth that God would go to for us. Not only that, but as I hear servant, I start thinking of Isaiah 53, the servant song. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed. By his wounds we have been healed. For we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This servant song that points to Christ's crucifixion and the sacrifice that he made for us. Do you see how we're hanging parts on this creed? How we're hanging the theology that is evident here? The words that are said, we start expanding them like a tackle box, opening them up so we can have this whole gospel carry it in our pocket with us. And he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. His character, his obedience to God the Father, Jesus coming and sacrificing himself as an atonement, making us right with God our Father through his sacrifice on the cross. We catch a sense of God's love for us. We see Jesus as this model of what it means to sacrifice ourselves for others at very least. But more than that, this final sacrifice that took care of every sacrifice, that our sin would be forgiven. But not only that, but on the cross, God had victory over sin and death. All these things evident in this one little passage, this one little verse, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name 
speaking to the exaltation of Jesus. Now this is, I have to say, this is one part of this creed that I wish um, we have to add a little to in the sense of the resurrection. I think it's implied here that God exalted Jesus. But this is a, a crucial part of the gospel that Jesus was raised again. On the third day, he was risen. But I think it's implied here in that God exalted him to the highest place. Not, that Jesus, not just that Jesus rose again and defeated death, but God exalted him, that he ascended into heaven and sits at, or sits at God's right hand right now. That he is God reigning right now. But it's included in this passage. They gave him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That ultimately, Jesus wins. Ultimately, Jesus wins. That Christ is coming again and he is bringing his kingdom with him. And one day, God will reign. And his reign will, or actually God is reigning. And one day, his reign will be evident on earth as well. So we see how this, this is the whole passage right here. You can see all the things that you can draw out of it. This theology, all of it biblically based. Evident right here in this passage of who Jesus is, this gospel for us. It's a tackle box faith. Now here's the thing, is we can pack it even a bit shorter than this, even a bit more condensed than this. Because, you know, like it's, kids can memorize that. Maybe like a little bit older they can memorize that whole passage. But what about our little ones? Where can we begin with them? Or even for some of us, is there a, a, even a smaller version? I've been thinking about this too, about condensing this tackle box creed of Philippians down to a pocket creed. Down to a pocket creed, something that fits easily, that we can easily remember. And it comes out of verse 11. It comes right out of that, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this pocket creed is simply this, Jesus Christ is Lord. Who here can memorize that part? Right? Yeah, say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our pocket creed. If you can't remember anything else about Scripture, you have to keep going back and reading it, that's fine. If you can just remember this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in and of itself, this is a statement. This is making a a statement about reality, that Jesus is Lord. That the reign of God has become. Jesus went, has begun. When Jesus came, he said, uh, repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. That Jesus is already king. Now we are waiting for the consummation of that. We are waiting for it to fully come into play here. We're waiting for his return. But Jesus is king right now. And that should shape the way that we live. The way that we do everything. But each word, again, becomes like a theological statement. So watch as we do this. Watch. So the first one is Jesus. Jesus. First of all, as I was thinking about this, and these are just some of the things that I was reflecting on, but I think there's things you could add to this as well. That First of all, it's personal. God, the Lord that we worship, is personal. Not the universe or a force, or an aura, but personal. God is a person. 
someone that we can speak to, that we've heard speak to us through Scripture. God is personal. And God is particular. God is one. He's not this, this um, fuzzy things or rocks or stones or trees or millions of gods. He's particular, one. One nature, three persons. And he's incarnate, or has been incarnated. Jesus took on flesh and lived among us. We, didn't, we have our Father in heaven, and God, in his wisdom, could have stayed in heaven and dropped a Bible out of the heavens for us to read. He could have spoken from a cloud, but he chose. In order to deal with our sin, he took on flesh was born into a peasant family in a backwater town in the middle of the Roman Empire for us. God took on flesh. As we just talked about in Philippians, being, uh, did not con- Jesus, who did not consider the equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant or a slave. So God took on flesh and lived among us. And not only that, but... Jesus is the English way we pronounce it. The Hebrew name is Yeshua. Yeshua is a derivative of the word of the verb Yesha, but Yeshua itself means salvation, victory, deliverance. But even in his name, Jesus, is the word salvation, forgiveness, grace, that sin no longer defines who we are. That Jesus is our Savior one who has saved us. So there are just a couple things on the name of Jesus. Next we talk about Christ. <clears throat> just to say this again, to clarify, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Trying to get at the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach. And this one is, takes a little bit more work, but when you read the Old Testament, you begin to get an, a, a sense or an idea of who the Messiah is, who the people have been waiting for. This Mashiach who would not only uh, change the government of Israel, but rule over the world, who was not only a political figure, but was also a religious figure, who would be a great high priest, who would make everything right again, who would bring God's reign to earth. He would be God's champion who would set things right, who would rule with justice and mercy and set his people free. We see in Jesus' first coming that he set us free from our sin. I'd say the bigger issue. And one day he's coming again to set us free from the brokenness of this world, to redeem this creation, to make it right and good again. So Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And then is. Speaks to the reality, this ongoing reality of who Jesus is. This doesn't say that Jesus was Lord and is not anymore. It doesn't say that Jesus someday will be Lord, so please just wait. Saying Jesus is Lord right now. Jesus is Lord of our lives right now. 
Not just someday when we die or someday when He returns, but right now. The last word is Lord. Now, we've had 2,000 years to get used to this title. But I can't help but think of what it was like when Jesus' first disciples began referring to him as Lord or when Paul would go to churches in the, in the Mediterranean in the, in the ancient Roman Empire and he'd go to a synagogue and he'd talk about how Jesus is Lord. Lord was the term that was reserved for Yahweh, for the God, for our Father in heaven, for the Lord uh, of the Old Testament. They would often refer to him as Adonai, Lord, our Lord. And so when we hear that Jesus is Lord, if we do our best to hear maybe like a first century Jew might, we hear the reality that Jesus is not just a created, a great miracle worker or a, even a suffering servant who died in the name of but he is God himself, that he is equal with God. One nature, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Jesus is God as well. That he is completely divine, fully human, and fully divine. Two natures. That he is co-ruler with God. And then you hang this, so you, you say these things to our kids, and they say, well, how do we know that? Where does it say that? And you say, well, check out uh, John's Gospel, the first chapter, if you want to see how Jesus was involved in creation and how he is with the Father. But this is not just a religious statement about who God is. This is also a political statement. That Jesus is Lord and no one else is. See, in the ancient world, there was somebody else who was called uh, Kurios. Kurios is the Greek word for Lord. It was Caesar. Caesar Kurios. Caesar is Lord. Actually, even Caesar at the time, Caesar had the name or the title Son of God. It's one of the titles that he made for himself. So when we say Jesus is Lord, that is inherently political. That's a political statement. That even though we live in Canada, even though we do our best to obey the government when we can, that ultimately we serve someone greater. That's a political statement. Again, I think of this book I've been reading, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, and when Christians were persecuted is because the governments at the time realized that being a Christian is political. It changes the way that we operate, that we hold to someone greater. And even though we follow the rules of our, of our country, it's because our Lord has told us that. It's interesting. I've, there's a, a, a teacher's name is Chuck Missler. He lives in New Zealand right now. Uh, and he always refers to himself, he's from America, so let me just change a little bit uh, for us. He has a statement, he says, I am not a liberal, I'm not a conservative nor NDP. I'm a monarchist. We are monarchists. Sure, we might find uh, that we fit maybe in one political party better than another, but at the end of the day, we are monarchists. We serve a king, not a prime minister. I have to say, I'm still grateful that I can say that and no one's going to come through the door and arrest me. I'm grateful that we live here that I can say that. But it's true for us that we serve a king and a Lord. When we say Jesus is Lord, that is a political statement. 
But it's also a personal statement for us. Jesus, when we say Lord, it's a religious thing, talking about who Jesus is, that he is equally God. But it's also a political statement, but it's also a personal statement that Jesus is Lord of our lives. So the things that he says, especially when you read the Gospels, the words of Jesus, when he says them, we follow them. Because Jesus is Lord, we follow his teachings. Not only that, because Jesus is Lord, we ask for him to guide our very lives. Lord, this is what I'm planning. Lord, will you please guide me? Lord, this is, these are some of the options. These are the things that I want to do. Will you please show me where you want me to go, what, how you want me to handle this? That Jesus is our Lord. We want to do things his way to follow him. So you can see how this pocket creed, how each word can be loaded up with theology, with a statement of faith that is more than just God is just in the sky and he's always there when I pray for him and he fixes things when I ask. You can see how much deeper this is, how much truer this is. So these creeds, these three things that we've talked about this morning, they are vital for us to teach our children. You know, maybe we begin at the bottom with a pocket creed. We just begin teaching our kids that Jesus is Lord. Just teaching them that phrase and maybe taking a couple of those words of Jesus and Christ and is and Lord and just adding a little bit to them so they have something to carry with them. And then as they get older, we start talking with them about Philippians chapter 2 and helping them understand the implications of each verse like we've gone through. Until one day as they're older and they can handle it, they're reading scripture and they're able to read the whole gospel, the whole story from Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation. This is essential for us. It's vital that we teach our kids, that we teach them the gospel. They don't have to try and figure it out on their own and come up with some sort of sub-gospel that will lead them astray. It's vital that we as a church do this. But I wanted to ask you, how will we as a church commit to passing faith on to our children? I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. And I was really wrestling with this because I thought about how should we as a church, so we could talk about it, like, you know, or how could, you know, different ways that we could kind of talk about it but not really commit. But I feel called to leave how will we as a church commit to helping our children, the children of our church, grow in faith. I'm interested to hear. What do you think? But the other part of this um, sermon is, one is tell the story, so what we've been talking about this morning. The other is tell your story. And as Rick was talking about, about those opportunities when we have a chance to talk about our faith. And I'm not going to preach a whole other half, but that Rick is right. For us to, talk, to look for those opportunities, not to you know, beat our kids over the head with it or, or, or wear it out, but, but to share our story of how we came to faith, the struggles that we had, the questions that we had. Those things are meaningful for our kids. So I'd like to encourage us to keep, uh, to keep asking this question. I would like to ask all of you, because I think this is something we can all do, to commit to praying for at least some of the kids of our church, if not all of them, maybe like on a particular day of the month or a particular day of the week, but to pray for the children of our church. So respond to God's word this week. Continue to reflect on Philippians 2, uh, 5 to 11. Read it and, and see if you see some of the same, or probably even more, uh, theological points 
that come out of that dense Carmen Christi, Christ Him. The other thing, too, is commit to at least one way you'll help our children grow in faith. And by our children, I mean the children of our church. Uh, that, that text from, De- from Deuteronomy 6, I see my kids differently now. I see my kids as our kids. Granted, Tracy and I have the primary role, but I'm asking for your help. And if I can be so bold as to ask on behalf of the Ringheims and the Bernhards and the Hansels and the McGibbons and other families who are part of this church, that you would help us raise our kids in faith.